Thank you. Good morning, Church. Today's scriptures portion is John's Gospel, twentieth uh, chapter, verses two, uh, three to eight. I am reading from uh, NIV. So Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciples outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked into at the strips of the linen lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went to straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the clothes that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The clothes were still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciples who had reached the tomb first also went in, inside. He saw and believed. I welcome Brother L.T. Jaychandran to take the time. Okay. Uh, thank you, Pastor Michael, and thank you, South Delhi Congregation. I seem to be turning up in a South Delhi Congregation like a bad penny, as they say. Uh, it's good to be here, and I prefer a gallery view rather than, uh, because I want, don't want to speak to myself. I'm speaking to you. So I would like to see you. And if your bandwidth is good, uh, please switch on your videos, because I know so many of you, it's nice to be uh, back with you. Now, I want to say, first of all, give the reason for this very peculiar title, Rest in Peace to Rise in Glory. Because very often we, we stop with rest in peace. And whether that is theologically a complete statement is what we want to look at. I was delighted when Pastor Michael told me that the topic for this whole month is a resurrection. So this fitted exactly with what I had in mind. And that is one of the reasons why um, we chose uh, this topic. I chose this topic. Uh, now, I've been jokingly telling some people, not yet, I've not yet told my wife, uh, but I've said that I would like this to be on my tombstone not just rest in peace, but in order to rise in glory. And um, I read it, of course, first in a dedication of a book by uh, Professor N.T. Wright. Um, it was to his parents who had passed away. And so he put his name, put their names, and he said, rest in peace to rise in glory. Now, as our good sermons, uh, mine will have only three points. Uh, the first is, Resting in peace, as I've called it, life after death. And the second point, which is a little longer, is where Brother Suresh read from um, John 20, but I would also be referring to Matthew 28. Uh, but I want to do that second point as a kind of a detective work. Uh, if uh, Imagine yourself to be detectives of the Delhi police. I don't know how good they are, but you can be good detectives. And you're going to contrast two resurrections. Uh, probably Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead only a week before he himself rose from the dead. And we want to see the difference 
between the resurrection of Jesus and the resurrection of Lazarus. And we would try to correct our vocabulary when we refer to the resurrection of Jesus. And of course, my final point is life after life after death. Not just life after death, but life after life after death. So that we correct some of these uh, issues that we have in mind. And so we will start with 2 Corinthians 5. You can turn uh, to that passage, but um, I may or may not turn and read from it. Uh, but because this um, order of service is available with all of you on soft copy, you can even do that when you go back home. Now, we normally say that when a believer has uh, passed away, and unfortunately, many of us have lost many friends uh, during the second uh, wave of the virus. This seems to have been more virulent. And we say, he, she has gone to be with the Lord. And we take that from a very important passage, which Paul makes in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 5. And he talks about absent from the body, present with the Lord. And that is true. But that is not our final state. That's what I want you to take away from today's reflections. That is not our final state. That is a disembodied existence of our soul and spirit in the presence of Jesus in paradise. You can think of the words that Jesus speaks to the repentant thief uh, on the cross. He says to him, today you will be with me in paradise. But that state is without our bodies. And that's why I want to read a few verses from the earlier section of 2 Corinthians 5. Let me read from verse 1. For we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, which is our body, we have a building from God, uh, an eternal house in heaven. Now, that is unfortunately one of the uh, misinterpretations we make. We think that we are ultimately going to heaven. Now, I'm going to change your paradigm that we are going to come back to a new heaven and a new earth. Uh, it's something like this. Suppose you came to our home, and if I tell you that we have lemon barley in the fridge, it does not mean that you have to get into the fridge in order to drink the lemon barley. So when Paul says eternal house in the heavens, it is what God is preparing for us with which we will be clothed again in a glorified physical form. And that's why he goes on to say, verse 2, meanwhile we groan, longing to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling. This present bodies, uh, which would be, which would perish. And if you are my age, and if you do not have aches and pains, the chances are that you are dead. So you should be grateful for aches and pains, because that's a reminder that we are still alive. Because when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. While we are in this tent, we groan and are burdened. And if you want a cross-reference, you can go to Romans chapter 8, where Paul says, we who are the first fruits of the Spirit, we also groan, waiting for the redemption of our bodies. Not our souls, our bodies. And so I want you to notice that what is death, as he says, uh, we do not uh, wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed instead 
with our heavenly dwelling, that is our glorified bodies, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up in life. So that is life after death, and which is an amazing thing. But it is not complete. Uh, when uh, Dr. Billy Graham passed away a few years ago, you might have seen a cartoon which went viral on WhatsApp. Uh, it shows Dr. Billy Graham fully clothed in coat and tie, uh, standing near the pearly gates. And Peter is telling him, there are many people here who are very grateful uh, for hearing you preach. I mean, that's a great statement. But my problem was with Billy Graham in a full suit, because his body is still in the grave. You know, that is unfortunately one of the um, misapprehensions. Let me tell you where it started. It started with good people, with good preaching. You can go back even to the 18th century or early 19th century, Jonathan Edwards, Charles Finney, D.L. Moody, Billy Graham, and in all their evangelistic messages, as they very clearly pointed to the punishment of hell, we saw heaven as the opposite of hell. And therefore, even if we do not hear it in the message, we got the impression that as soon as we die, we are going to heaven, which is not fully correct, but partly correct, because we are going to be with Jesus in paradise. But that's not going to be our final state. That is life after death. But when you are studying through this whole month, about the resurrection, please remember that we are not just talking about life after death. We are talking about life after death with our resurrections. And that's why my last point is about life after life after death. But between the two, I want to do this detective work. Now, if you are good detectives, you will notice two physical evidences. Now, before we go into those evidences, because if you're a detective, you should know the culture and so on, I'll take a few minutes to explain to you how well-to-do Jewish people buried their dead. And I think Joseph of Arimathea was a rich man, and we can assume there are good reasons to believe that Mary, Martha, and Lazarus belong to a well-to-do family. They provided hospitality to Jesus. In John chapter 12, we even see a dinner being given in their home. So uh, assume uh, them to be reasonably well-to-do. They have their own graves. And secondly, when they buried their dead, they would do two things. And you'll have to listen to this very carefully. They will tie the face tightly in a scarf. And now from the neck to the tip of the toes, they'll tie the body in strips of linen. And they lay the body horizontally but the head they will keep on a stone. So if you go into a Jewish grave, you find the head on a stone, the neck and the body. Now this detail becomes very necessary when we come to John chapter 20. Now, when you are in um, Luke 11, and this paragraph is already there in your notes, uh, you may or may not turn to it. We are all very familiar with this. When Jesus comes to the tomb of Lazarus, when he sees Lazarus' sisters weeping, he also weeps. But for your information, I want to tell you, uh, unfortunately, the English word uses the same word, uh, weep. But in my Tamil translation, there's a different word, which is a more literal translation of the Greek. 
they were wailing. But Jesus wept. He shed tears. So there are two different ways of weeping. I hope uh, as Christians, we also learn that, that when a loved one passes away who knows the Lord, we do not wail. We grieve, not like others who have no hope. That's Paul in 1 Thessalonians 4. But we weep having a hope of the resurrection. And so Jesus asked the stone at the mouth of Lazarus' uh, grave to be moved. And of course, Martha uh, would object. It's four days. He will uh, have a bad odor from his body. Now, Jesus quite ignores her. He, he lifts up his face toward heaven. He thanks the Father and calls Lazarus out with a loud voice. Now, in apologetics, we have given a very wrong impression that we are here to answer all questions, which is ridiculous, which is blasphemy. Uh, if I can answer all questions, then God will not be worthy of worship. So there is a place for mystery, there is a place for questions. But I want to tell you a question that I have in my mind. When I meet Lazarus in the new creation, I'm going to ask Lazarus, how did you come to the front of the tomb? You were tied hand and foot. In fact, the way you walked to the tomb can even be part of the Tokyo Olympics. If I tied you up like that, how would you be able to get up in the first place? How would you be able to move to the front? And what does Jesus say? Lose him and let him go about freely. So the two physical evidences that you are going to investigate would be the stone at the mouth of Jesus' grave now and the clothes that bound the dead body of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's go to Matthew 28. In verse 1, you find that an angel from heaven comes and rolls the stone away, and the guards, probably 12 to 16 guards, were guarding the tomb. They become like dead men. But you do not see Jesus walking out. Oh, that's a very important thing. And so, uh, what does the angel tell the women a little later in that same chapter? He is not here. He has risen. So the stone was rolled away, not to let Jesus out, but to let us in. And that becomes a very important aspect, because only two people have uh, the courage to go there. In fact, I, I developed a sense of humor by reading the Bible. Because the Bible has a sense of humor, and the sense of humor is part of the image of God in us, uh, as long as you are not making fun of somebody. Now, when you read the first two verses of John 20, John always refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. And I was thinking to myself, it is good that John wrote his gospel after the other disciples had died. Otherwise, what do they think? What do you think they would have thought? when they read his gospel. Is it only John that Jesus loved? Of course, he loved everybody else. But John, in my view, was young enough not to be embarrassed to lean on the breast of Jesus and hear the heartbeat of the triune God, which is one of the reasons John writes more about the Trinity than even the great apostle Paul. Now, so the two of them are running 
but John being the younger uh, is able to reach the tomb first, but he has no courage to get into the tomb. Peter, who lumbers behind uh, John, when he reaches the tomb, he rushes in where angels fear to tread. You don't rush into a tomb like that. Uh, and then what do they see? Now, here comes the Greek. Um, and you can com compare with your um, vernacular translations, which in some ways are much better. They saw the clothes lying there. Uh, the Greek word is kaimai, K-E-I-M-A-I. That should have been strictly uh, translated as lying undisturbed in the same position as the body was. The second verse, of course, um, Suresh read from NIV 2011 edition, which has made a very important correction here, because the earlier 1984 edition talks about the cloth around Jesus' head as folded up, like you mothers, when you go into the room of your sons in the morning and you find it in total chaotic condition and you fold it and keep it aside. You get that impression. But that's not the word. The word, Greek word is entuliso, which means rolled up. And why was it in a place by itself? Because it was on a stone, still retaining the shape of the head, but the head is not there. Now look at verse 8. When John comes inside and looks at the clothes, he sees and he believes. He knows that something very different had taken place. Jesus' body had gone through the clothes, had gone through the stone at the mouth of the grave, could come through the walls of the upper room where the disciples were hiding in fear of the Jews and appear to the disciples. Now, I want to be sure that I finish on time. Now, two years ago, I was able to get a few minutes, I asked for 10 minutes, with a very famous astrophysicist, one of our most brilliant, Professor Jayant Narlikar. Uh, he lives here in Pune. He is in his early 80s, still very busy, worked with Fred Hoyle in the UK and so on. Now, when I was first, my first posting with the government was in Bombay. And at that time, I uh, used to subscribe to a magazine called Science Today. That magazine has folded up. It was part of the Times of India group, a monthly magazine, which had a center page science fiction. I remember reading a story called The House. And in that uh, story, uh, the writer uh, talks about an imaginary house. He says, if I built an 11-dimensioned house, a house of 11 dimensions, you with your three-dimensional bodies can go through that house without even realizing it is there. Because a higher dimension physical body will not resist lower dimension physical bodies. I was interested in this story because I'm a civil engineer, but I did not see the connection uh, between that story and the resurrection of Jesus. It dawned on me pretty late, and I've come to this conclusion that when you hear something, uh, for you to really understand it, it takes about 25 years. I'll tell you why the 25-year gap. That is the time gap between God's promise to Abraham to 
give him a son through Sarah and the actual birth of Isaac. So don't be in a hurry to understand. God takes his own time. He's a very slow God. Even David has to say how long to God. If God was slow for David, how much slower he is for us with our smartphones and internet and so on. So he is not in a big hurry to teach us. But it took me a long time before I came to understand about Giant Narnika. I mistook that he wrote that story. So through some friends of mine, I could somehow get uh, some time with him. So I simply asked him, sir, can you describe to me, without going into advanced mathematics and all that, how a higher dimension physical body will not resist lower dimension physical bodies? The good teacher that he is took a pencil and on the paper on his desk, he drew a simple figures. He said, a cube has, a three, has three dimensions. A cube will not resist a two-dimension square because a cube itself is made of squares. So a, a square can form, pass through a cube without any resistance. Similarly, a square will not resist straight lines because a square, two-dimension square, and a straight line is a single dimension. It can go through that square. Then I told him, sir, that is what happened to Jesus at his resurrection. We talked about it. We are still in touch with him. In fact, he is a very peculiar cosmologist. He belongs to a minority of cosmologists who do not believe that this universe had a beginning. He believes in an expanding, contracting universe, which probably ties in with his view of reincarnation. That is my analysis of uh, his worldview. But the great majority of cosmologists around the world, including Sir Fred Hoyle, with whom he worked, believe that this universe had a beginning. I'm not going into that. Now, I want to tell you here that Jesus' resurrection, now we come to the conclusion we are detectives. When you go into the grave of Lazarus, you find the clothes. From this day onwards, you shall not call the tomb of Jesus the empty tomb. Unfortunately, apologists have been saying that. We have to be very clear. It was empty of the body of Jesus, but not of the burial clothes. If the tomb was really empty, what would be your conclusion? That the body of Jesus had been stolen. And that was the story that the Jewish leaders were circulating. So it is not an empty tomb. Very, very important. The grave clothes were still there. But what was the position of the clothes? That's what I tried to explain through my discussion with Professor Narlikar. Obviously, the body of Jesus had been raised to a higher level than our three dimensions, which is why he could pass through the clothes, pass through the stone at the mouth of the grave, come through the walls of the upper room, and particularly in Luke chapter 24, you see that when the disciples doubted, he could come down to our three dimensions so that he could be touched. He could eat. Please remember that. That is why John, being the smarter of the two disciples, he saw this. He remembered the resurrection of Lazarus and he knew that something very different had taken place. He saw and he believed. Now, what does that tell us as we move to the final point? 
it tells us, first of all, that we are looking forward to a new level of physical life, just as Jesus was. I've given some references uh, in your notes, which you can look up, but I'm not going to spend too much time on it. Instead, I'm going to uh, refer to something which you all know, uh, but which are not given in the notes. Now, how did God create the first human being? Take Genesis 1 verse 1. In the beginning, God, who is spirit, creates the heavens and the earth, which are matter. Come to Genesis 2 verse 7. God formed the man from the dust of the ground, matter, and breathed into him the breath of life, spirit, and the first human being comes into existence. Please remember, we are the only creatures, I will not go into this topic further, but we are the only creatures in God's creation who are a combin combination of spirit and matter. And when God the Son becomes the human Jesus, he puts a seal of approval on this spirit-matter combination. And when he is raised from the dead on the first Easter morning, as Pastor uh, Michael reminded us, 52 times in a year, we are remembering the resurrection of Jesus. Why did the Jewish Christians, remember all the first Christians were Jews, how within a few years, they left remembering the Sabbath, which is the remembrance of the closure of the present creation, and start worshiping on the first day of the week, which is the inauguration of the new creation, which is what Revelation 21, 22 are all about. It is the new creation. Unfortunately, our theology among evangelical Christians begins with Genesis 3, the fall, and ends with Revelation 20, the lake of fire. And we leave out the first two and the last two chapters of the Bible. And that is why our good news is disconnected from physical reality. Apart from praying for the sick, particularly during these days. And we heard the good news that Brother Mohan Patnaik, who's close to so many of us here, is on the road to recovery. Yesterday morning, he was able to speak to his 90-year-old mother. He's been extubated. That means the throat tube has been removed. Now he's uh, only having a mask. We pray for the physical uh, healing, but we do not see that we are also physical. And we are looking forward to a physical new creation, which is why we are, our bodies are going to be like his glorious body. Please read Philippians 3. Uh, please read 1 Corinthians 15. I'm not going into them. We are all familiar with this passage. They are being read every Easter day. In fact, let me tell you an interesting joke I heard uh, last year Easter. It was a joke which went viral. It's a conversation between Pontius Pilate and Joseph of Arimathea. And Pilate is asking Arimathea, are you going to give your tomb to this criminal? And Arimathea, Joseph answers, Your Excellency, but it is only for the weekend. It is only for the weekend. He's <laughs> not going to occupy this grave forever. That's exactly the point. It was empty of the body of Jesus, but not empty of the clothes. Now we come to the last point, which we'll return to Revelation 21. But please read the other passages when you get home. And I'm going to read the first four verses. 
then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Please remember, again, a physical creation of a higher dimension, because that is the environment in which we, the church, will be living with our glorified bodies. I, I, please remember, Genesis 1 and 2 was written by, were written by Moses. Revelation is written by John some 1,500 years later. They didn't have a committee meeting. But through the Holy Spirit of God, you are reading here about the glorification of the physical creation. Old heaven and earth have passed away. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. Sea, a symbol of destruction because of the flood, and it will not be there. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. Who's that? That is the church. South Delhi congregation, we are part of that church. In what direction are we moving? We are coming down. Our final destination is here. Even the present creation, in spite of the mess that we have made of it, is still so beautiful. Read C.S. Lewis's The Great Divorce, a pure parody, a kind of a, a parable. The raindrops are heavier. The grass is greener. He is trying to describe the new creation in physical terms. So we are coming down out of heaven from God. As a bride beautifully dressed for her husband, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. God will wipe every tear from our eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things, which we inaugurate by eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Our ancestors inaugurated the old order of things, the older order which eventually culminates in death. Now, the old order of things have passed away. The new order has been inaugurated by Jesus. And so in the new creation, just one more verse, verse 5 of Revelation 22, there will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp nor the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light. And what will we be doing? We'll be reigning over God's new creation. What was God's first commandment to Adam and Eve? Reign over my present creation. Rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air. Oh, that continues. So in the new creation, we are going to be continuing to look after God's new creation. That is why our work in the present creation becomes all the more important. In 1 Corinthians 15, long chapter, entirely devoted to the resurrection of Jesus. How does Paul end it? With which I will end this. Be steadfast, unmovable brothers and sisters, always abounding in the work of the Lord, which, by the way, in the first century, did not mean full-time Christian work. Any work you are doing in the name of Jesus, anything that you eat or drink in the name of Jesus for the glory of God, always abounding, because your work is not going to be in vain. It is a one-verse answer to the whole 
book of Ecclesiastes, where a great king with all his accomplishments comes to the conclusion that everything is vain. And Paul climactically concludes his chapter on the resurrection. Your work is not in vain because there's going to be new creation. You are going to continue to work. What kind of work? I don't know. Although as a civil engineer, I know that the gold, pearls, precious stones, you remember in Genesis chapter two, will be processed to be gates of pearl, streets of gold, foundations of precious stones in Revelation 21. Maybe God will employ me as one of the civil engineers for processing those raw materials to finished products so that my work, even in this present creation, may not be rewarded, may not be recognized. It becomes part, it becomes motivated by the glory of the new creation. Shall we pray? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, eternal God, we worship you because there is no one like you. We thank you because one of you became one of us forever in the person of Jesus, whom you raised from the dead, Spirit of God. And he is now seated at the right hand on the throne of God. And as we await his coming again, as we await the resurrection of those who have slept in the Lord Jesus. As we await the transformation of the bodies of those of us who would still be living, we want to thank you for this amazing climax to your word. And so we pray that we would be steadfast and movable in whatever we do, knowing that it's not in vain. Keep us. The Lord uh, turn his face towards us, give us peace. The Lord lift up his countenance upon us. And may the blessing of God Almighty, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit rest and abide with us now until Jesus comes again. Amen. <laughs>